would please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Today we come to part two of part one of a three-part study (laughs) on the ordination sermon, the latter half of lesson number 64 in your books. And as you know, we did not finish that lesson last week, but I decided you all know how to read, don't you? So what you can do is read what I don't have time to cover in the um, books. And what I'm trying to do, and I'll, I'll periodically try to do this, is give you new and fresh information that you don't have in the books. So just go home, read the books, you'll learn about all the things I didn't have time to say, and then you'll learn something new and fresh today that is not in the books. All right, now due to our jet tour through the first two years of the Lord's ministry, and the last three years of you know being here in this Bible study, we only covered the first part of our outline on part one of the ordination sermon, and that part was called the harvest. We only covered verses 35 to 38 in chapter 9. We didn't even get to chapter 10, which is where the ordination sermon starts. We talked about, remember, the compassion of the Christ, which is what his mission to earth was all about in the first place. God so loved the world that he gave his son. It was all about his compassion. He came both to express and to demonstrate God's compassion to mankind, the kind of compassion men are to have one for another. Remember it said he saw the multitudes. He saw those following him as he went through the countryside and as he went into the villages and the cities and as he went into the synagogues and the mountainsides and over by the seashore and even as he saw them in cemeteries and when he saw them in their homes, he saw them and he was moved with what? moved with compassion for them. Not only was he moved over their physical needs, he saw their hurts physically and their handicaps and their suffering, and in some cases he saw their hunger, but he was even more moved by their what needs? Spiritual needs, exactly. They were like scattered sheep with no shepherds to guide them. They were, remember we talked about this word, they were faint-hearted and weary. And why was that? Because for the most part, they were lost. They didn't know God. They weren't saved. They were food for the wolves. They were helpless without any caring, loving, sacrificial shepherds to guide them. Who were their shepherds? The scribes and the Pharisees? You see why they were faint-hearted? Those, those guys didn't care for the flock. They, they only were out for themselves. They had no sacrificial shepherds to protect them. They were without purpose in their lives because they were empty and they were lost. They did not know the good shepherd, the one true good shepherd, the one door into the safety of the sheepfold. They were lonely and they were bewildered. They did not know the way to the sheepfold of God. And who is the way to the sheepfold of God? Who is the door? The Lord Jesus Christ. No one was guiding them to the door. No one was guiding them to the good shepherd. When sheep get confused, you know, God compares you and I to sheep. That's not really a great compliment because sheep are pretty dumb. But you know what? From God's perspective, I guess we are pretty dumb. (laughs) It takes us a long time to learn some things. But you know what sheep do when they get confused and they get tired and they get hungry? They just lay down 
And that's what the word faint, when he, it says that he saw them and they were faint, that means literally they laid down. Jesus saw the multitudes all laying down in their hearts. He saw them all laying down in their souls because nothing escapes the eyes of the omniscient Jesus. He saw that life weighed them down. Can life weigh you down sometimes? It really can. Life weighed them down. He saw that religion, they, he saw that their religion or their form of religion, what they had turned their religion into, surely weighed them down. And he also saw that their unforgiven sin weighed them down, which of course is what sin does. It weighs us down. And for the most part, as I said, they were still dead in their sins. Most of the Jewish people at the time of Christ were dead in their sins. He knew that only if they came unto him, those who were weary and heavy laden, would they find rest unto their souls. So it was a time to begin to train his own 12 disciples for the ministry of shepherding, which they would carry on in his place once he was crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended back to his father. They would be the ones to take on the work of the kingdom. So it was a transition time. For him, and it was a transition time for the disciples. From now on, they would become active participators in the kingdom work rather than just disciples. What does disciples mean? Learners. This was one of your homework questions. Instead of just being learners and observers, they would now be sent out. They would now be apostoloi. They would be apostles, sent ones. And that was a great calling. Uh, the fields were ripe unto harvest fields and fields and more fields of people, not only in their generation, but in all the generations of history to follow. And are there fields ripe unto har white unto harvest today in the world? More so than in any other generation of time. There are some 7 billion people in the world today. Many, many opportunities for the gospel to be shared. But what's the problem? We're laying down too few laborers, too few laborers. And that's why he said in verse 38 of chapter 9, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. In one commentary series that I like to use where all of the authors are anonymous, which I thought was kind of nice, they um, mentioned the fact, and I had never really thought about this, I guess, but they, they mentioned the fact that a crop has a, uh, has a particular period, of course, in which it can be harvested. It, it, every crop has its own season. For example, we have fig trees in our, in our yard, and it's like if you don't get those figs right at that perfect time, they're either too hard and they're not ready to eat yet, or if you miss them by even a day, they can split wide open and they're covered with bees, and then it's too late. So there's just a particular time when you can, when you can harvest crops. Right? Do you all agree? And, and this commentary see, series compared this to, um, to the world, to people. It said that every generation, within every generation, there is usually a peak harvest season. And that may depend on something on the world scene. For example, maybe after the uh, terrorist attack on 9-11, that was a peak harvest season for people living in the United States of America. Or, you know, maybe right... Uh, the time of World War II, or something on the historic, you know, on the contemporary scene in world history, would cause a peak harvest season for each generation. 
And then every person also has a peak harvest season in our lives. Uh, for one thing, our lifespan is our harvest season. You think, you know, some of us live to be 50, 60, 70, 80. You know, if you, if you think of our little lifespan, it's but a vapor, right? Compared to eternity past and eternity future, which no mind can even, even, even fathom how big that is. Because it's beyond time. But our little lifespan of maybe, let's say, 70, 75, 80 years, that's the only time in all of eternity when we can be harvested. Right? And then if you take our little 70 years and look within that, there are certain peak seasons for us to be harvested. Sometimes it's childhood. Now, that would be the most ideal time to be harvested as a child. But for some of us, it takes something else. Maybe somebody close to us dies, and it gets us to really thinking, which is what happened in my life. Maybe it's a, a, a season where you're suffering physically, and you start to think about spiritual things. Or maybe it's when you get married, or maybe it's when you have your first child, and you think about the child wanting to raise the child in the church. And, you know, there's diff or some, for some people, it's on their deathbed. But there are peak seasons <clears throat> in our lives when we can be harvested. And I just thought that was a really interesting way to think about it. The harvest, Jesus said, is absolutely plenteous, very plentiful. There is a world full of opportunities for reaping ready fruit. But as we said, there is this problem of a shortage of laborers, which is why we need to pray as he told the original apostles to pray. It was a command, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers in his field. And you know what? We cannot pray that prayer unless we are ready ourselves to say, what? Here am I, Lord. Send me. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to Africa. It doesn't mean you'll have to go. I mean, now, if the Lord calls you to Africa, you better go. But maybe it means you just have to go next door and, you know, to your neighbor. Or maybe just hand a tract to the grocery clerk. And those others who God brings across your path. Well, after telling his men to pray for laborers, we find that then in verse 1 of chapter 10, he summoned them together to commission them to be those very laborers for that plenteous harvest that he was talking about. And that brings us to part 2 of our outline on the ordination sermon, which is called the helpers. We looked at the harvest. Now we are going to look at the helpers. So look with me at Matthew 10. I am going to read all the way through 15, but I guarantee you we won't get much past verse 8. <laughs> all right. It says, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostle, apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Is that the message we proclaim today? Well, we could in a way, but basically our message today is Jesus Christ has come and died for you, and he was dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended back into heaven. Uh, the kingdom of heaven literally was at hand back in that day because the king was among them, and if they had accepted him, they would have received the kingdom. That's the message they were to preach. All right, verse 8, and here's what they would be able to do. By his power and his authority, they would be able to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely ye have received, freely give. I may not get to this in my lesson, so I just want to put in a little footnote right here. Four things that they were going to be empowered to do. Now, you will see, as you drive along sometimes, churches that have billboards out front that say, Apostle so-and-so preaches here, you know. Are there apostles with a capital A in the world today? No, there are not. And if anyone claims to be an apostle, they don't really understand the biblical uh, <laughs> definition of an apostle. Apostle had to be directly taught and trained by the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, if somebody claims to be an apostle, ask them to go with you down to the local morgue and watch them raise somebody from the dead. They might say, well, I can heal somebody, and they might say, I can cast out demons, but then take them to a leper colony and ask them to cleanse the lepers. These are the signs and wonders that gave authority to who was a real apostle. They could do these things in Christ's power and Christ's authority. But no one has those gifts today. I guarantee you, no one has those gifts today. The apostles only needed to be able to do these things until the full Bible was written. We had the, the, you know, we had the whole New Testament. At this time when they went out, there was no New Testament. So in order for people to believe their message, they had to be able to perform these supernatural miracles. Then the people would understand that they came from God. Okay? Just wanted to clarify that. Also, those faith healers that are out there, that uh, maybe on television or whatever, that say, send in money. <laughs> I, I want to point out the um, last half of verse 8. What does it say? Freely ye have received freely give. Ask them about that one when they ask for money. All right, that's enough said about that. Let's go on. Now he tells them, provide neither gold nor silver, don't take any money with you, he said, nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey. A scrip was a little bag in which they carried food. It was like a lunch uh, bag. He said, don't take any money and don't take any food, neither two coats, just take one coat. Neither shoes. Don't, shoes were different than sandals. They could have their sandals, but they couldn't have an extra pair of shoes. Nor yet staves. <clears throat> Stave is like a staff. There were shepherds going out, but they weren't going to take any staves, staffs with them. For the workman is worthy of his meat. Now let me just interject this because I probably won't get to this. It is in your books. But this was a temporary command. All right? Make sure you understand this. This would be negated later on. Later on in Luke chapter 22, the Lord Jesus said to his men, he was going to send them out again. And he said, you remember when I sent you out and I told you, don't take any money, don't take a scrip with food, don't take an extra coat, don't take extra shoes, don't even take a staff. He said, well, that's, that's over with. This time you take all those things. So this was just a temporary command 
They're on their first mission, and he wants them to learn to trust totally in who? In God. And working through God's people, because it would be through God's people that they would find their, their support. God's people would have them staying in their homes. God, God's people would ha- um, house them and, and feed them. So that's what he was teaching them on this first mission without him. All right, now, verse 11. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, who is a godly family to stay with, and there abide till ye go thence. He didn't want them staying with ungodly people because who you stay with has a reflection on on your own testimony. All right, and then he says, and when you come into an house, salute it. Now, that does not mean you give it, you know, a salute. <laughs> it was the term they would walk in and they would put a blessing on that house by saying shalom, which means peace to this house. And uh, verse 13, and if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it not be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And basically he's talking about the peace of God. You know, if the people in there would accept the message that the Messiah had come, that he was Jesus Christ, then peace would enter into that family. If they rejected it, then the peace would return back to the apostles. They would not receive the peace of God. This is the short version, okay? You get the full version in your books. All right, verse 14, And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words... When ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. That was judgment on that place. Now this again, let me remind you, these were instructions to these apostles back then at this particular time. This does not mean we are to take these as our instructions. We keep on preaching. We keep on preaching. We keep on preaching. Sometimes people don't accept the gospel the first time they hear it, do they? We don't shake the dust off of our feet in judgment the first time. Now there comes a time when you do not cast your pearls before swine, but, you know, that's that's another story, and you have to have discernment to know when that is. All right, where was it? Verse 15. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city, that city that would reject Jesus. We've talked about that before because he had made that comparison about Sodom and Gomorrah previously when he spoke about the three cities of Bethsaida, Chorazin, and uh, Capernaum, remember? Are there, ju- are there different levels of judgment in hell? There have to be because he said it would be more tolerable. So there are degrees. You know, there are certain people who should have a hotter hell than others, aren't there? Yes, Adolf Hitler for one. Okay, the helpers. In a book that is entitled Quiet Talks on Service, which is written by S.D. Gordon, there's given this imaginary conversation. It's not in your books, I don't think, so don't (laughs) try to find this. But this conversation is given between the Lord Jesus and the angel Gabriel right after the Lord returns returned to heaven following his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Now, this is totally imaginary. But when Gabriel greets the Lord, he asks him, he says, Master, you died for the world, didn't you? And Jesus answers, Yes, Gabriel, I did. You must have suffered so much, Lord, Gabriel said to him, to which again Jesus said, Yes, Gabriel, I did. And then with a frown on his face, Gabriel asked, 
Lord, do they all know what you did for them? Do they know that you died for them? And he said, no, Gabriel, only a few in Israel know about it so far. Well, Master, what is your plan then for telling the rest of the world that you, the Son of God, died for them, that you shed your blood for them, that you took their sins upon yourself, and you took the wages of death, of sin, on yourself, which is death? What's your plan for letting the rest of the world know about that? And Jesus responded, he said, Well, Gabriel, my plan is this. I asked Peter, and I asked Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Nathaniel, and a few others, if they would make it the business of their lives to tell others. And then the people they tell, who believe their message, they in turn need to tell others. And they, in turn, will need to tell others. And on and on it will go. And then Gabriel scratched his head, and with a real crease in his brow, he said, But Lord, suppose Peter fails. Suppose John decides that he just doesn't want to tell anyone. What if James and Andrew are ashamed or afraid? What if those other guys don't want to put up with all the the rejection? And the pain. What then, Lord? And you know what the Lord answered him? He said, I have no other plan, Gabriel. I'm counting entirely on those few men. I know that's fantasy, but it does speak a great truth about the proclamation of the gospel message. The only plan the Lord has for reaching the great harvest of this world, the fields that are white unto harvest, is for those who know him to witness to others about him. How are you here today? Because somebody shared with you the gospel message, and somebody had shared with them the gospel message, and on and on it goes backward until you get to 12 special men who not only shared and gave their lives their faith, all but one, John, but also were responsible for writing much of our New Testament. So we are going to spend most of the rest of the morning looking at these men, the twelve. They're listed for us here in Matthew 10, verses 2 to 4. They're listed several other places as well in the scriptures. One, for example, is Luke 6, verses 13 and 14. And it can be kind of confusing for people, and we're going to try to straighten out some of that confusion because when you read some of the names, they're given in one name in this account and another name in that account, and so we're going to just try to talk about all that and learn some interesting things about these men. It's interesting, first of all, that Matthew pairs them for us. He gives them to us in pairs, and we'll look at the six pairs that were sent out on this first mission two by two. We aren't told they went out in pairs in Matthew. It's Mark who tells us they went out two by two. So that's why it's so important to put all the Gospels together, like we're doing. Then you get the whole big picture. But over, I think it's in Mark 6-7, we find out that they did get sent out in pairs. But Matthew gives us the pairs. So before we look at some other aspects of the Lord's um, 
commission to these men, such as the limits that he put on their ministry. They were only to go to the lost sheep of the house of, the, of Israel, and I do want to talk about that before I let you go. And the message we already talked about, really, that what they were to proclaim, the kingdom is at hand. And the miracles we sort of already talked about, and, and their means for their physical support we've generally talked about. So we're going to basically be looking at the men. You know, we had those subdivisions, the ministry, the message, the miracles, the means, the method, and the men. But let's focus on the men. One thing I want us to center on as we, you know, talk briefly about each of these 12 men is that they did not lead the church into literally turning their world upside down because they were such super talented, extraordinary, brilliant, personality gifted, charismatic orators or because they were super saints, or anything else you could think of. Don't think of the apostles as guys walking around with halos over their heads. Okay, get that. If you have a picture of them like that, get that out of your mind. They weren't any of those things. You know what they were? They were sold out. They were surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they allowed his strength to be made perfect in their weaknesses. They, they were, they allowed, they, they, uh, when they saw him resurrected and realized who he was, they wanted to become living sacrifices for the work of the Lord. And they did. They literally became living sacrifices. They all were willing to die for their Lord and only one did not, other than Judas. Okay. So God's power was perfected in their weakness. The greatness of God's grace and the greatness of of God's work here on earth is seen by the fact that you know who he chooses to do his work? You and I, the dumb sheep. <laughs> We're the ones he chooses to do his work. Now, wouldn't you think maybe he'd go for the wolves? Wouldn't they maybe do a better job? Mm -mm. He, wants, he wants those who, are, who know they are helpless and hopeless without him. He chooses the undeserving. He chooses the weak. He chooses the foolish, the underqualified to do his work. But they do that work in his power and in his authority. And you know what? They accomplish amazing things. The world has never been the same after those 11 men. The apostles were ordinary men. They, were, they had natures just like you and me. They had their strengths. They had their weaknesses. Uh, they weren't overly bright. None of them had gone to the seminary, rabbinical seminary of their day. Uh, none of them were necessarily very educated or rich or famous or noble or mighty. In fact, if you and I were looking, <laughs> if we were looking to start a work for Christ, we might very well have overlooked these unsophisticated bunch of ragtag fishermen and former tax collectors and zealots, sectarian, prejudiced guys. And you'll see what I'm talking about as we look at them. We probably would have overlooked this bunch and picked others. But the Lord works in a different way, doesn't you know why he works in a different way? Because who gets the glory when he does it this way? He gets the glory. So who were these men? Well, let's look first of all. The first pair of men that went out was Peter and Andrew. And they were what? Were they related? Yes, they were related. They were brothers. We'll start with Simon. It says, Simon, who is called Peter? Who gave him the new name of Peter? His given name was Simon, but 
Jesus gave him the name Peter. Do you know what Peter means? Rock or stone, actually. Stone, big stone. And the name, the word stone in Aramaic is Cephas. So you've heard him also called Cephas in the scripture. It just means stone, stone, but it's Aramaic. Now in every list in the scripture of the apostles, Peter is always mentioned first. He was a natural leader of men. He just had that kind of leadership ability. He was a leader of men, but I want you to make sure you understand he was not a leader over men. He was a leader among men and of men, but not over men. They, only, they had only one master over them, and who was that? The Lord. He was the only one over them. Peter, this is a good sign of leadership, all right? Peter continually asked questions. Peter wanted to know who, what, where, why, when. He was always asking questions, and that was good in his case because he wasn't like the scribes and Pharisees who were asking questions in order to trip up the Lord. He was asking questions because he really had a genuine concern and interest in Jesus and in his work, and he wanted to understand. Some of the others, some of the other men, you know, when they didn't understand something that the Lord would share with them, they would just keep quiet and not ask questions. Maybe they didn't want to look like fools. I don't think Peter worried about looking like a fool. <laughs> um, I don't think he thought sometimes before he acted or said something. But they, the others sometimes would just keep quiet or they would debate among themselves. You know, they would discuss their doubts or, the, or they would question just among themselves, but not Peter. And he was often also the first one to respond to the Lord's questions. Not only did he ask a lot of questions, but when the Lord asked questions, Peter would oftentimes be the first one to respond. Sometimes that was good, like when he said, you know, the Lord said, who do you say that I am? And he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Now that was good that he answered that first. He got a brownie point for that. But another time when the Lord wanted to wash their feet, he, you know, that wasn't too good. When he said, oh no, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And then when the Lord explained, he said, I mean, this is Peter. Oh, wash me from head to toe. He wasn't content to just stay on the sidelines. He wanted to be in, in the middle of the action. Wherever the action was, you'd find Peter. He wanted to be right there. Who was the first one to jump out of the boat when Jesus came walking across the Sea of Galilee? <laughs> I don't think he thought about that first. <laughs> and I thought, too, I was thinking about that. Do you think there was a splash in the water? No, I guess not. When he jumped out, he just started walking on top. Isn't that amazing? until he started thinking about what he was doing, and then blah, 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 blah. But he was the first one out of the boat. He was the only one out of the boat. Uh, he followed Jesus even when Jesus was arrested. Now, the others all scattered. But Peter was as close to the Lord as he could get, even though he denied him, you know. Remember, he was there, so he could kind of keep an eye on what was going on with Jesus. He was there warming his hands by the fire. He was the, uh, the first one into the tomb, the empty tomb. And let me tell you the story about that because you'll say, well, I thought John got there first. John got to the tomb first. John was younger than Peter. Uh, John was probably the youngest apostle. And Peter, John just outran Peter. The two of them started out together. But I always picture Peter, don't you, as a big, burly fisherman, you know? And he probably couldn't run as fast as young John. So John got to the tomb first. But all John did it was, it says he stooped down 
and he looked in and he saw and he believed. He saw the way the clothes was the the shroud, the linen was laying there, and he saw the napkin folded and he instantly believed in the resurrection. Peter comes up behind him and probably shoves poor John right out of the way and just charges on into the tomb. So he was the first one into the tomb. And he still didn't understand when he was in there. He looked around and didn't get it. Peter was a little slower to learn things. But when he learned them, he learned them. And he learned them well. And you can't help but love Peter, can you? Well, how did he... Oh, and I also thought about the time he whacked off Melchizedek's ear, you know, when the Lord was being arrested. Peter died a terrible death. It says, it's said by the uh, ancient writer Eusebius, who wrote a book called Ecclesiastical History, that before Peter was crucified, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his wife. Now remember, Peter had a wife. We know Peter had a wife because he had a mother-in-law. <laughs> and you don't get mother-in-laws for free. <laughs> But he had to stand at the foot of her cross and watch her suffer and died. And it says that the whole time he was there, he said to her, Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord, honey. Hang in there. Well, she had no choice to hang in there. But remember the Lord. And when she died, then it was his turn. And he told them, he said, I am unworthy to die the way my Lord died, so crucify me upside down. And they did. He crucified Peter upside down, and I can't even begin to imagine the pain that that would be. This crucifixion is the most horrific punishment ever invented by man, and to do it upside down, with all the blood rushing to your head, but he wanted to die for his Lord. He might have denied him, but after that he was willing to die for him. Now I can't see my notes. Ah. Then there was Andrew. Peter's partner was Andrew, who was his own brother. And Andrew, remember, was the very first disciple, the very first one that we read about in John 1.40. He had been a disciple of John the Baptist, and when John the Baptist pointed that long finger at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world, who was the first one to follow him? Andrew. Andrew was apparently a godly, humble man who did not have a problem with staying in the background, either behind his brother. And don't you know, if you have a brother like Peter, you're always in the background. He was always in the background of, of his brother Peter. And he was behind others as well. Because even though he was one of the original disciples, the first one mentioned, yet he was not included in the inner circle. Who was the inner circle? Peter, James, and John. But you know what? Andrew didn't seem to have a problem with that, which tells us how humble this man was. He uh, showed no resentment about that. And he's an example to all who labor quietly behind the scenes and in humble places. And when we see Andrew, every time in the scripture we see Andrew, except for that first time when he followed Jesus, 
Well, no, including that. That's right. He's always bringing people to Jesus because as soon as he followed the Lord, who did he run and get? He ran to get his brother Peter. So you know all the fruit of Peter also goes to Andrew because Andrew brought Peter. First one he ran to get was his brother Peter. And every other time we see Andrew, he's bringing people to Jesus. He brought the young lad with the lunch to Jesus, and that lad's lunch was used supernaturally to feed 5,000, probably 15,000 people. He also, at another, on another occasion, brought some Greeks to the Lord Jesus. Maybe they're some of my ancestors, you know, who came to know the Lord way back then. He saw the individual more than the crowd, and I like that. He saw the individual instead of the crowd. It is said that Andrew, now a lot of this is tradition, what I'm going to tell you about their deaths. I can't really be dogmatic about a lot of these, but it is said that Andrew led the wife of a provincial governor to faith in Jesus Christ. And when she refused to recant her faith in Christ, her husband was so angry that he seized Andrew and he had him crucified on an X-shaped cross. Not the regular cross, but an X-shaped cross. And that became the symbol for Andrew to this day. Down through church history, when you see a cross like this, it's a symbol of Andrew. And it's also said that it took him two days to die. And while he had breath, he continued to preach the gospel to everyone who passed by. Amazing. <clears throat> then there were, when I was studying this, I was doing the same thing. Then there was a second pair, James and John, and they also were brothers, weren't they? I remember when our children were little and we were playing Bible trivia one time, and one of the questions was, who was the father of James and John? And our son thought was so proud of himself, he said, I know, I know, thunder. <laughs> <laughs> they were given a nickname by Jesus, which was Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. So he thought their daddy was thunder. <laughs> but we really do know the name of his daddy. What was it? Zebedee. Yes. The father of James and John, they were all in the fishing business together. They were rather lucrative. They did well in the, in the fishing business. Their father's name was Zebedee. Does anybody know who their mother was? We do know. Remember they sent her on one occasion to Jesus because they were rather self-centered? Salome. Their mother's name was Salome. Their father's name was Zebedee. Zebedee and Salome. And uh, Salome was Mary's sister. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Her sister was Salome. So they were sisters. So that made Jesus and James and John cousins, first cousins. Okay? Get the picture? All right, so we have another pair of brush, uh, brothers here. These guys, because Jesus gave them the title Sons of Thunder, what do we know about them? They were passionate, they were zealous, they were aggressive. In the beginning, they were very intolerant and vengeful. Remember, they, they wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans in, in Luke chapter 9? Don't sound like really nice guys, do they? They wanted, um, they wanted the places of prominence. They were very self-centered. They wanted the places of prominence in the Lord's kingdom. They even got their mother, Salome, to do the dirty work. 
you know, well, his mother is your sister. You go and ask for us. We're his cousins. We should have every right to be on his right hand and his left hand when he comes into his kingdom. In King's, uh, King Herod's eyes, James, who I assume was the older brother of the two, King Herod must have thought that James was the very most dangerous of the apostles because uh, perhaps he was the most unrelenting, uncompromising, most thunderous, most vocal because King Herod had him singled out and executed. He was the first, James was the first apostle to be martyred. He lived the shortest life other than Judas Iscariot who went out and hung himself, but James lived the shortest life of all the apostles. He was a short, bright flame, but a big flame. You know, some people, the Lord just gives them less time here on earth, but they can make a great impact in a short bit of time. Uh, for example, Robert Murray McShane, I think, was one example. I think the fellow died when he was only 20. He was a missionary. Well, he died, died when he was 28. But he made an impact on his world in that short time. It's interesting to think of the fact that James' brother, John, lived the longest. And some people live long lives, and they have a long time to be a testimony for the Christ, like, for Christ like John did. It is said that, uh, well, this we know. This, this we can be dogmatic about James' death. He was uh, sentenced to be uh, beheaded. And it is said that the Roman soldier who guarded him was so impressed with James' bravery and his spirit that he knelt at his feet and he begged him for forgiveness for the way that he had treated him. And James is said, and here's the man who was so sectarian and prejudiced, he wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. And here's a Roman soldier at his feet, and he said, Peace, my son. Peace to you and I forgive you for your faults. And it is said that the guard was so moved with the compassion of James that he publicly confessed Christ, and the two of them were beheaded together. Then there was his partner, who was his brother, John. As I said, he was perhaps the youngest apostle. It's interesting. Uh, of course, he wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the epistles. And what other book did he write? Because he did live so long, and the Lord had a plan, and John was the one who was inspired. He saw the resurrected Christ in his glory, and he was uh, given the book of Revelation. So five New Testament books were written by John. But it's interesting that we only hear him actually speak one time. Isn't that I mean, he wrote, but the only time we have anything that he ever said is found in Mark 9, 38. He was the only one not martyred, but he did live, he was persecuted a lot, and he did live in, at the end in exile on that Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. In his early years, just like his brother James, he was, this is funny to think about because we think of John as kind of just the apostle of love. But in the beginning, he was just like his brother. He was full of thunder. He was full of zeal. He was full of prejudice. And he was very sectarian. Along with, no, I know what that one time he speaks. You know what it is? I just thought of it. In Mark 9, the one time we ever hear from John is when he says, uh, Lord, there were some guys that were casting out demons, but we forbid them to do so because they're not of our group. 
that's sectarian when you say, you know, it's our group and our group alone. We're the only ones who can do anything. We're the only saved ones there are in the whole world. You know, that's sectarianism, and that's what he was full of. But he became, you know, when the Lord gets hold of a life, he changes it, doesn't it? He became known as the apostle of love. He used the word love more than 80 times in his five books. He's the first disciple, as we talked about a little while ago, the first disciple to understand the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tradition tells us that John did not leave Jerusalem until Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus, died. Jesus had entrusted her into whose care? Not one of his brothers' care. That's interesting. You know, he had brothers and sisters, but who did he entrust? The only disciple that w- who was there at the foot of the cross. He entrusted his mother into the care of John. Mary was his aunt, Mary. It's interesting you think about the fact that Jesus told Peter, tend my sheep, but he told John, tend to my dear mother. And that's really a compliment. He knew that she would receive more love from John than any of the others. Okay, then there was the third pair. We've looked at Peter and Andrew, James and John. Now we're on the third pair, and they consisted of two men, Philip and Bartholomew. Philip, we'll start with Philip. Philip's name means lover of horses. That's what his name means. Now, I don't know if he loved horses or his mom and dad, who named him, loved horses, but somebody in his family loved horses because that's what his name means. He was from Bethsaida. He had no human agent to lead him to the Lord Jesus Christ. God's word had, had apparently properly prepared Philip's heart because as soon as Christ walked up to him one day and said, follow me, you can read about this in John 1.43, two words, follow me, what did Philip do? He got up, left everything, and followed him. You see, he must have had spiritual ears and spiritual eyes and a spiritual heart because when he heard the shepherd's voice, he recognized it, and he followed the good shepherd. He also then was a great evangelist because the first thing he instantly did was go and get his friend, who remembers? Nathaniel. Remember Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree? And he runs to him, and what is Nathaniel? He says, well, we found the Christ. And he says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? But the first thing he did, and he was a great evangelist because he only used two words. He didn't try to argue with him about good things that could come out of Nazareth. He just said, come and see. That's all you have to do when you go out there and invite ladies to Bible study. Say, come and see. Come and see for yourself. If you don't like it, fine. Leave. But just come and see. Or this brothers twice. Tell your young people, come and see. Come and listen. Come and hear. I guarantee you they'll like it. Because they're interesting guys. All right, tradition tells us that Philip was taken and stripped naked and he was hung upside down from his feet. Not on a not on a cruci- not on a cross, but just hung upside down from his feet, and he was pierced with sharp stakes in his ankles and his thighs and they let him slowly bleed to death upside down head down awful and it is said that he he asked not to be shrouded with linen because he was unworthy to be shrouded with linen as his lord had been 
great guys, all of these great guys. Wonderful testimonies. You know that this, that Jesus is true, that these men were willing to die for him. They really saw him resurrected. They wouldn't have been willing to die these kind of deaths for something that they knew wasn't true. They really saw him. You know, it might get to the point in our lives with the way the world is going that we might, maybe not us, if we're asked to give our lives for what we believe, but I am fearful for our children and our grandchildren. They may not be able to walk the line like so many Christians do today. They may have to be willing to not bow before the image, you know, and give their lives. All right, Bartholomew was his partner, and that's a hard word to say. But he was also the same as Nathaniel, the one we just talked about. Nathaniel was from Cana, and he was the one who said, Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Now, why? You say, why does Nathaniel, why is his name also Bartholomew? I don't get that. They're not, they don't even sound alike. Well, all Bartholomew means is son of Ptolemy. Bar, B-A-R, have you ever heard of Jewish boys at 12 years old? They have a bar mitzvah. The word bar means son. He was the son of Ptolemy. For example, if somebody saw my son, and they'd say, oh, that's the son of Frank. But he also has a name, doesn't he? That's Chris, the son of Frank. So his, this is Nathaniel, the son of Ptolemy. And some people will make a big deal about how the Bible is wrong. That's not, that's not wrong at all. Okay, and let's see, what else about him? He, he received a great accommodation from the Lord Jesus Christ. I would love to receive an accommodation like this from Christ. Christ said of him, An Israelite indeed, in whom is found no guile. You know what he was saying about him? What you saw was what you got. There was no deceit in this man. Okay, if he had a problem against Nazareth, he would let you know he had a problem against, you know, about Nazareth. But he didn't put up any false pretenses. He was real. He was a man of God, too. And we know this because he was having a time of devotion when Jesus met him, when Philip took Jesus to him. He was sitting there, wasn't it under a fig tree? Speaking of figs. And he was having a time of devotion, and the Lord got to him because he knew what he had been thinking about. He had been thinking about Jacob and Jacob's ladder. He was very bright. Bartholomew, Nathaniel, let's call him Nathaniel, was very bright. He caught on fast in the one time we hear about him. We never hear him questioning or arguing with Jesus. He may have been one of the most dependable and teachable of all the apostles. Now, tradition says nothing about him. We do not know anything about his life, his ministry, or his death. Which is interesting, because all that leaves us with is what Jesus said about him. An Israelite indeed, in whom there is found no guile. And isn't that a wonderful epitaph? Then there was a fourth pair. Thomas and Matthew. Now, Thomas, sadly, when you think of Thomas, you automatically think of what word? <laughs> Doubting. Isn't that amazing? We always think of Thomas as the doubter. But that's kind of sad in a way because his great statement, his last statement was, my Lord and my God. And that's found in John 20, 28. 
You know, that statement actually climaxes the whole Gospel of John. Remember, John's Gospel is written to show the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and is climaxed by that statement. You know, he didn't have to put his hands, he didn't have to thrust his hands into the Lord's side and see the nail prints in his hands, did he? He saw him and he said he knew, not only are you Lord, you are my God. So it climaxes John's gospel. So we should think of, let's try to think of him more in that capacity than as a doubter. All right, um, Thomas also has another name that you can read about in the scripture. Does anybody know what it is? Does it say it in here? No, it's, in a, it's, it's somewhere else. Didymus, I heard it somewhere. Didymus. He's also known as Didymus. And again, that's a little nickname. When the, These apostles really knew each other. They knew each other well. So they'd say, oh, you know, Didymus. You know what it means? The twin. Thomas was ob obviously a twin. He either had a twin brother or he had a twin sister, but he was a twin. And that's all that Didymus means. It's like ditto. <laughs> that's where ditto comes from. Tradition says that Thomas preached as far as India. Whether this is true, I don't know for sure, but there are churches in India that still bear his name. He is said to have died by a, and this is interesting, by a spear thrust through him, through his side. Now, isn't that a fitting end to the man who said, except I thrust my hand into the Lord's side, I will not believe. But like I said, he didn't have to do that. He believed, and he was willing to have a sword pierced through his side for the one he believed, believed in his Lord and his God. All right, Matthew, we've talked about Matthew before when, when he was initially called by the Lord. His name used to be Levi. The Lord Jesus changed it to Matthew. Levi, Matthew, was a tax collector before he was, uh, became a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the, the author of the book we're in right now, of course. He, once he got up from his tax table... He never looked back, did he? Once he put his hand to the plow, he never looked back. More than any other man, he probably gave up the most monetarily because as soon as he left that very lucrative tax table, he couldn't go back. Somebody was waiting to fill his spot. Even though his own people hated him, did the Jews hate the tax collectors? Very much so, because the tax collectors not only collected the tax for Rome, they worked for Rome, they were puppets of Rome, but they also you know, uh, collected more taxes so they could line their own pockets. So tax collectors were hated by the Jewish people. But even though the Jews hated him, hated tax collectors, to whom did he write his gospel? To the Jewish people. His gospel is written with Jewish readers in mind. He loved his people and he wanted to see them come to know Christ, their king. He presents Christ as king. John as God. You know, each we've talked about this before. Mark is the servant. Luke is the man, Jesus. In his, his humility, Matthew was very humble. He never, even when he threw a great feast for the Lord after he was saved, he didn't talk about it. We learned about that from somebody else. He was a very humble, and this is probably because of his overwhelming sense of gratefulness and unworthiness to have been saved and selected for service by the Messiah, to whom much is forgiven, much is, is, is thankful. 
required, well, that isn't what I was, I mean, he was very grateful because he knew from whence he came. Uh, he really knew the Old Testament more than, it seems like more than any of the other, he must have either, he learned it as a child, he learned the Old Testament, he did, they didn't have the New Testament, he wrote the first book of the New Testament, or he learned the Old Testament after Christ died and he started studying. But regardless of when he learned it, he knew the scriptures because more than all three of the other gospel writers to put together, that would be uh, Mark, Luke, and John, he quotes from the Old Testament more than all three of those put together. He knew the scripture. I don't have anything on his death, so I do not know how he died, but we do know he was a martyr for the Lord Jesus. The fifth pair of apostles were James, the son of Alphaeus, and then Thaddeus, also called Labaius. Let's look at James, the son of Alphaeus first. James, the son of Alphaeus, was also known as James the Less. Now, that does not mean that he was less important than the other James, you know, the older brother of John. It's probably just maybe that he was smaller. Maybe he was short, at least shorter than the other James. Or maybe it was um, um, that he was younger than the other James. But it doesn't mean he was less important. But they called, you know, their nickname for him was James the less one, you know, the smaller one. Or the, maybe the, the less influential or something like that. Now, this is interesting. Did you know that Levi, who became Matthew, we just talked about him a little while, yeah, we just talked about him, also had a father named Alphaeus. What was James the less father's name? James, the son of Alphaeus. Well, Levi, Matthew, was also the son of Alphaeus. And because of this, Many, many commentators, not just a few, but many say that there was a third pair of brothers in the apostles, Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus. Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, James, the son of Alphaeus. Whether that is true or not, I cannot say, but it sure is interesting that if the Lord picked actually three pairs of brothers to be in his apostles. Not much is known about James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know a single word that he ever said. We don't know a single thing that he ever did. Early church fathers tell us that he preached in Persia, which today is known as Iran. Today is, what would the world be like today if more people had listened to James the Less when he went to Persia or Iran? interesting to speculate. All right, then there was Thaddeus, who was also called Labaius, and he was also called Judas, comma, not Iscariot. And he was also called Judas, the son of James. Now you say, you can understand why people would get confused, can't you? Here is a fella, has four names. Thaddeus, Labaius, Judas, not Iscariot, and Judas, the son of James. Judas, most likely, was his original name. He was the son of James. And when the, some of the disciples talked about him, they said, Judas, but not Iscariot. Don't get him, I'm not talking about Judas Iscariot. I'm talking about Judas, not Iscariot. Judas, the son of James. So we can understand those two of his names. But why was he called also Thaddeus and Labaius? Well, again, people have nicknames, don't they? 
Like our son could be the son of Frank, and he could be Chris. Some people even call him John because his first name is John, but we've always called him Chris, so we get mail to John. Um, and then he has this call sign. He's a pilot, and they have call signs. And you know what his call sign is? Fungus. <laughs> so if you were reading about him in a book, you'd say, wow, he's got a lot of names. You, did you know I'm the mother of fungus? Where did he get that call sign? I don't know. He walked into something poisonous like ivy or something or other, and he had his whole face was just couldn't even open his eyes. They were swollen shut. He's shown me a picture, and he did. He looked like fungus. <laughs> All right, Thaddeus comes from the Hebrew word for breast. Thad, T-H-A-D, is the Hebrew word for breast. This, mean, this was a common nickname for the breast child of a family, which usually meant that that was the baby of the family, the one who was the last to be nursed by his mother. So you see, Judas, son of James, was the baby in the family. He was the breast child, Thaddeus. Some of you are babies in your family. You would be called Thaddy I or Thaddy A or whatever it would be. <laughs> You're the baby in the family. So that was a nickname, similarly with the name Lebeus. It's based on the word L-E-B, Leb, which means heart in Hebrew. He was the heart child. He was the breast child. He was the heart child. He was the baby of the family, and he was his mother's favorite, apparently. So when they talk about him, you say, oh, you know, the heart child, the little spoiled one who loves his mommy so much. He only spoke once in the recorded scripture, and he had a sincere and a very honest question when he did speak. That was in John 14, 22, which the Lord Jesus answered without rebuke. He answered his sincere, honest question. We don't know much more about him except that tradition says he was especially blessed with the gift of healing and that he went into Syria and there led many people to Christ. Now, again, I don't know for sure if that's true, but he supposedly healed the Syrian king of some disease and led him to the Lord Jesus. And this conversion of the Syrian king got the Syrian's nephew so upset that he had Thaddeus bludgeoned to death with a club. And therefore, throughout church history, the symbol for Thaddeus or Lebeus, the heart child, has always been a club. Remember the symbol for Andrew was a cross, and a symbol for Thaddeus, Lebeus, Judas, not Iscariot, is a club. All right, the last pair is Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. Now, Simon the Zealot was a zealot. Do you know the zealots arose in the intertestamental period of history? In other words, in the 400 years between the time Malachi was written, the last book in the Old Testament, and when Matthew was written, the first book of the New Testament, there was an intertestamental period. And the, um, there was a revolution started by the Maccabees called the Maccabee Revolution in which the Jews were fighting their Greek oppressors. And that is when the sect of the zealots arose was during that period of time. They were primarily guerrilla-type terrorists is what they were. They, were, they um, would make surprise attacks on Roman posts and soldiers. They were the guys who'd slip up at night on a Roman. And with this, they were known for their short daggers. They would slit the th throat of the Roman and then slip away into the hills. They'd go into hiding. That was the zealots. 
Now, if you were starting a work for Christ, would you call such a person to be one of your foundations? <laughs> no, but Simon, before the Lord Jesus got a hold of him, was a member of this sect. He was a terrorist. He was a zealot. And don't you know how wise the Lord's pairing is here? Because who does he put with Simon the zealot? Judas. Who would you put with Judas? Well, such a man as Simon the zealot would be a great one to pair with, uh, with Judas because he would not have been a man who would be easily manipulated. So there's a lot of wisdom in the way the Lord paired these men to go out. All right, then finally there's Judas Iscariot. Iscariot means he was of a town called Kerioth, which was in Judah, the southern province of Israel, not Galilee. He was the only non-Galilean. All the other guys were from Galilee up in the north of Israel. He was from Judah. He's always in every list where the apostles are mentioned, he's always last. For obvious reasons, he was a false apostle. He was later replaced in the book of Acts by Matthias. And then, of course, we have Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, who was an apostle out of season, but he was trained by the Lord Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus. Judas betrayed the Lord for with a kiss and for 30 pieces of silver. He'd been the treasurer of the group. He was a supreme example to us in all of history on the illustration of the fact that the love of money is the root of all evil. He's the chief hypocrite of all time. It's remarkable when you think about it. It's a mark of the Lord's inspiration and it's a mark of his divinity that these widely diverse men with a full range of personalities, right? We've looked at them, full range of personalities, temperaments, weaknesses, strengths, that they were welded together into such an amazingly influential band of men that they literally changed the world, not only for their generation, but forever. Just think, in one group you have Peter the optimist, and you have Thomas the pessimist. You have Simon the zealot who would have, you know, hated tax collectors. The zealots hated the Romans, and so they would hate any Jews who worked for Rome. So Simon the zealot is there in the same group with Matthew, who was a tax collector. And you have uh, Nathaniel, in whom Christ said there is no guile. And then you have Judas Iscariot, who is nothing but guile, nothing but deceit. And you have Andrew, who sought out the young and the old, the Jew and the Greek, anybody and everybody, without prejudice, to bring them to Jesus. And then there was James and John, who wanted to bring down lightning on Samaritans and were sectarian about anybody who wasn't in their little group. A very diverse bunch of men, but they became in Christ what? One body. Look at us today. We're all so diverse. We have different strengths, different weaknesses, different temperaments, different personalities. We come from different backgrounds. We come from the north and the south. We come from different countries, and, you know, of nationality. We even come from different churches, and yet in Christ, what are we? One body. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it a miracle? There was, of course, great wisdom on the Lord's part in sending these men out on their first mission without him in pairs. That's wise. Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, which was written by King Solomon, gives us good principles about the value of partners when it comes to ministry. And especially when you're starting out a new work. 
It's always wise to be in pairs. It says in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one. Woe to him that is alone when he faileth, for he hath not another to help him up. Companionship in ministry is biblical and it's very important. The disciples had never gone out before on their own. With a partner, you see, they would be, they would be able to help each other make better judgments, uh, like who was worthy to stay with, which home, you know, whose home they would stay in, and when it was time to leave, when the people refused their message, when it was time to dust, shake the dust off of their feet, they'd make better judgments together. They'd make less mistakes between the two of them. They would be able to help one another in times of difficulties. They would be able to handle the loneliness and the temptations and the discouragements and any other uh, problems they might have, any, any possible feelings of self-pity. They could help one another. They could encourage one another not to quit, right? It's a good thing to have a partner. It's a good thing to have an accountability partner, even, uh, as a Christian. They could serve to remind one another of things that they had learned from Jesus. One of them might remember what Jesus did in a certain situation, and the other one had forgotten about that. And they said, oh, we need to do this. This is what Jesus did, remember? Or remember what Jesus said? They could help each other remember those things. They could remember how he handled his critics. And they could learn from one another's strengths and help each other in their weaknesses. They could take turns ministering. And that would certainly help to reduce the fatigue level, right? So you see the value and the, and the wisdom in this in sending them out in pairs. Pairing for ministry continued to be an example that we see. When we go into the book of Acts, do we see the same thing? Yeah, because we read of uh, Peter and John, and we read of Paul and Barnabas, and we read of Paul and Silas, and we read of Barnabas and John Mark, and etc., etc., in pairs, very wise. Furthermore, the Old Testament taught that a testimony was confirmed by the witness of how many? Two or three. So the message of the gospel of the kingdom that these men were going out and preaching and teaching would be verified to the people by the fact that there were at least two of them. Very important that he sent them out in pairs. Now I want to mention just another couple things and we'll be through. First of all, we need to look at verses 5 and 6. The first command that the Lord commissioned his men, the first part of the command was, uh, look at verse 5. This called, caused a lot of controversy and a lot of misunderstanding. It says in verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. And then look at verse 6, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, we might question this. Why is Jesus saying to his men, don't go to the, any Gentiles. Don't even go on a road that would lead you to Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Only go to Jews. Only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, we might say, well, that doesn't seem to make sense because we, we already know that Jesus has ministered to Gentiles. He has also um, with Samaritans. Remember, the woman at the well was a Samaritan, and then the whole town of Sychar, which was Samaritan, they came out to him, and they all, they all accepted him as the Christ. And he's healed, remember the Gentile nobleman's son? He healed him and the Roman centurion with a great faith. So why here, this doesn't seem to make sense. Why is he telling his own, why is he limiting their ministry to just Jews here in this first commission? Well, there's really three reasons for this. And I'm going to try to give these to you 
fast if you don't get them there in your notes. But keep in mind one thing above all else. This was a temporary command. This wasn't permanent. This was not permanent. It was soon to be replaced by another commission called the Great Commission in which they were told what? Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That's why some of them we read about going to Iran and India and Syria and Paul, of course, everywhere in the you know, Gentile world. So this was just a temporary command, but there was three basic reasons for why he told them at this point to go to the Jews only. First reason was because this was God's original plan. The Jews were God's chosen people. They were the people to whom he made his covenant promises. Uh, he was the pe- they were the people to whom he gave the promise of a redeemer to come through them. And they were the people to whom he gave his law and his written word. Salvation was, as he even told the Samaritan woman at the well, salvation was to always come through who? Through the Jews. They were to be God's witnesses to the, to the world. You know, Israel is placed in the belly button of the world. That, so there's a reason for that. So that they could reach the world. Um, I won't get sidetracked, but I learned something this week that's so neat. Um, but I can't tell you now. All right. They were to be God's witnesses to the world. I'll tell you. Remind me when we get to the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay? When we get to this, the last lesson in this book. If anybody can remember, remind me to tell you about the navel of the world. Okay? It's really it's cool. All right. It was through the Jews that all the families of the world to be, were to be blessed. It was through the Jews that the Messiah, the seed of Abraham and David, was to come to save the whole world. The Jews were to be the first ones to hear the gospel and the first ones to be introduced to the Messiah. And were they? Yes. Who did John the Baptist introduce to the Messiah? First people were the Jews, such as Andrew and John and James and Peter. And then they were to preach him to the rest of the world. Now, just think about this. If when the Lord finally sends these men out on their first mission venture alone, without him, if they had gone first to Gentiles and to Samaritans, guess what? The Jews would never have listened to what they had to say because they would have thought for sure they were carrying a pagan message because they knew that they were to be the first ones. You see? So that makes sense. All right, second reason the Lord at this time limited their ministry, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, is for practical reasons. This was their first assignment, the first time they were on their own. They were probably barely up to the task of witnessing to their own people, much less trying to be effective with peoples whose cultures and manners and thinking they didn't understand. People that they had been taught all their lives to despise. Just think about the problems that Peter had uh, even after he received the Holy Spirit. The problems he had with understanding that the gospel truly was also for the Gentiles. So these men were a long way at this point, a long way from understanding this truth that the gospel was for the whole world, Gentiles. I mean, they were, getting, they were getting pictures of it, glimpses of it, but in a little while, that's when they want to call down lightning on some Samaritans. So this makes sense that he limited them wisely, first of all, to their own people who they did understand better than the other people. The third reason he probably restricted their mission to Jews was to limit their specific assignment, a ministry that is too wide 
in its perspective, in its scope, not perspective, but too wide in its scope, tries to embrace too much, can very quickly become a shallow, ineffective ministry. The most effective helpers that Jesus has are those who will put their time and their energy and their talents and their gifts into one primary task to which the Lord has called them. And that's where we all have to be careful. And that's not to say we can't help out here and help out there in other ministries, but our focus should be to one primary ministry because we can burn our, burn our candles at both ends, 